After the announcement from 12 clubs that they'll break away and form their own new Super League, we reflect on the anger it's caused throughout football, from the ordinary fan in the street to the game's most decorated managers. We ask if enough is finally enough, whether the greed of these self-serving, self-interested clubs means they should be expelled from their divisions. This is a Third Eye Podcast special. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Third Eye Podcast. We're recording today off the back of the news from the football world that 12 European football clubs, including six uh, from England, have decided to break away from their respective leagues and form a new European Super League. Um, we always try to make th- these podcasts quite light-hearted and fun. I think today we're just going to go with how we feel. So I'll uh, I'll jump straight into it. Today I've got uh, with me Jules. Hello, Jules. You're right, Jim. How are we? Yeah, not bad, thank you. And alongside him with a very shaky camera is Tom. Super, super league. Hello, boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, our emotions are obviously going to be quite high about this but just to start off six clubs in England Manchester City, Manchester United Liverpool, Chelsea hilariously Arsenal and even more hilariously Tottenham Hotspur are six of 12 clubs uh, <laughs> who've agreed to form a self-styled European Super League the other clubs are Milan, Atletico Madrid Barcelona, Inter Juventus and Real Madrid. Um, their objective is a new midweek competition, which for them would replace uh, the Champions League. They say that they would carry on playing in their uh, national leagues, uh, and those 12 clubs uh, would be 12 of 20 in a new midweek competition. There would be no relegation for those clubs, so it's impossible for them to fail. And they say three other clubs will join them as permanent members and then five others on top of that would somehow qualify from their leagues. Um, it's an absolutely ridiculous, greed fueled idea. What do you... Is that, is that a statement or your opinion? I think it's fair to say it's both. Bit of column A, bit of column B. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would contend that it's a, both an opinion and a matter of fact. Um, Tom, what do you think? It's, um, I mean, it's a very brazen power grab uh, at the very least. Um, I was reading up again. I'd forgotten completely about Project Big Picture uh, before we went into this. Do you remember that? And that was the idea that, again, sort of uh, set about by the big six in inverted commas or sort of big five in Spurs, uh, that there'd be a restructured Premier League with 18 teams with more trickle-down payments to support the rest of the football pyramid. Um, but it was basically underlying all of it was a bit of a power grab uh, by the big six. Uh, they wanted more power over how the Premier League was run, basically, and tried to sell it in a way that this would support the football pyramid. And we knew that as, a, as an outcome of that, which never come about, that the Super League was going to be the next step. Uh, a bit of an active proposal by them to formulate something that, as an idea, had existed for quite a number of years, but no one ever thought they'd see it happen. And then all of a sudden, some bright spark at JP Morgan has obviously gone, well, actually, lads, I've had a whip round. And uh, we could actually finance this and we could actually get this off the ground to the point where it's it's a genuine proposal with, you know, full-on genuine launch and, and marketing. This is this is very, very serious now. We, we, we shouldn't... Uh, undermine that at all it's it's dangerous for the meritocracy of competition which is the football world that that we have created which has obviously taken over 100 years to formulate Uh, we're we're on a bit of a a precipice a bit of a turning point as to where where do we go next do we allow something like this to to happen and fundamentally based on the football principles that that we all have in the nature of the grand, grand pyramid that is football, it it stinks, it's rotten, it's not the football game that we've all come to know and love. Jules, Fed touches on something there about it, it not being what we've come to know and love. As a 
Tottenham fan, with Tottenham being one of the clubs that's made this proposal and, and is part of this, whether they should be or not, I'm sure we can get into, but they've said that they're going to do it. What does that make you think about Spurs? I feel sick, is the honest answer. I've, I've veered today between actually feeling quite teary and actually just feeling really angry. And I, and I, and I haven't really netted out on quite quite where I where I am it's a I mean it, it's disgusting it's a paragraph I agree with everything Fenn said um but for me personally I'm, I'm sort of torn um also because I you know this isn't what the fans of the club want and, I, and, I, and I'm sure every club would say that I'm sure there, there are Liverpool fans right now who feel absolutely sick fans who really you know it does you know you'll never walk walk alone does mean that to them and there'll be United fans, you know, you know, that was a club born out of the docks, you know, more, what, 100 years ago. You know, these are, for, for no fans of the clubs doing this want them to do it. This is ultimately about owners who view clubs as mechanisms either for making money or for sports washing. So I feel both sick and I'm also trying to, to see if I can almost forgive Tottenham the club for what the owners are doing and to be honest I I don't know if I will be able to. Mm. Something that stands out to me apart from the fact that it is just disgraceful is how completely self-serving this group of individuals are behind it. I know Preston North End who were the, the first I think or among the first winners of the Football League when it first formed made a very valid point. In England, we have this self-styled big six. But look back in history, they haven't always been the biggest six clubs in the country. And even if you look at it now, Arsenal in particular are making the case that they are amongst the 12 most elite clubs in Europe. They're barely amongst the 12 most elite clubs in England. This is a club that struggled to beat Burnley. Uh, Sorry, struggled to to get a draw against Fulham yesterday and will be lucky to finish in the top half of the Premier League. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? Um, Arsenal haven't won a league title for 17 years. Uh, Chelsea only win it sporadically. Man United haven't won it for eight years. Tottenham haven't won it for, what, 60 years? And you look at it and just think, who do you think you are to decide that you're better than everybody else? It's not an argument about almost which club it is. It's just an argument of... Those owners could have taken over any club. Yeah. If those owners, you know, if if the, uh, you know, if if the Newcastle takeover had gone through, they would be putting themselves into this right now, hundred percent. You know, it's not, it's not. Sadly, it's not even about the club. We are just mechanisms. We are just a badge. Just a vehicle. Yeah. There was a there was a line going round. I think it was either last night on Sunday or this morning, uh, Monday morning, where somebody at one of these clubs had referred to supporters as legacy fans which is it tells you everything you need to know isn't it legacy is the the word you use for a bit of kit that you inherit when you buy a new business that's out of date or a website that you don't use anymore it's just an inconvenience to get rid of um it's very obvious that what this group want to do is attract the day trippers and very lucrative TV markets in other parts of the world, which I'm sure if they get this thing off the ground, they will do. And they don't give a toss if the people from the communities that these clubs are supposed to represent don't get to be a part of it anymore. But if a football club isn't part of its community, if it isn't grounded in its geographical location, what's the point? What's what's the purpose of it existing? Tottenham, for example... I think you're, you're absolutely right, Jules. It's not the club, it's not the players, it's not the fans, which is what make up a club. It's just the owner of the business that's decided to do this. But if Tottenham Hotspur go into a European Super League that cuts it, it cuts it off from North London, essentially, it's not Tottenham in any meaningful sense, is it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the scariest, the scariest thing. Um, and... <sighs> It's, it's such a painful sort of realisation that this is how, how far we've come. And I don't really see 
a solution. I'd I'd hoped that this was going to be a bit like Project Big Picture, Fen, you mentioned earlier. It was going to be like a negotiating tactic, where it was going to be a way to push for more money or for some kind of stronger, you know, coefficient system where their heritage basically gave them an advantage against a one-off, you know, freak season like say what West Ham are having. But they have put, you know, they've withdrawn from the European Club Association. They've made that like this is happening. This isn't a a hypothetical. This isn't just a tactic. They are really dead set on doing it. But is it like this is the thing for me? I'm not potentially as doom and gloom as as you are, Jules, because I'm not. I'm still not convinced it will happen. I will believe it when I see it. I think this is the most amount of investment they've put up into <laughs> what looks like a bit like a Ponzi scheme, ironically a pyramid scheme, but not uh, in this context. Um, obviously, they've put a lot of money into this, uh, like the promo video and coming up with some sort of, like, like the worst logo as well. Like, I was going to say, if you've got that Champions much money, League football, <laughs> and you've just chosen Super League, like if you've got all that money, like you're probably going to say, Jim, you're just going to come up with something better. It's like fucking DC Comics to Marvel in it. Oh, <laughs> oh we've got the we've got the Avengers though. Oh, oh well, we've got the uh, Justice League. Well, we've got the Super League, and it's it's no fucking different. There are so many hurdles though that the Super League needs to overcome, and it's it's such a complex issue where it sort of it stretches beyond club heritage, beyond uh, legacy fans, and, and inverted commas. It's there are staff, and by staff, I mean football players and coaches and managers, directors of football, whatever, who are all part of these uh, superstructures of these top, top football clubs who also have to be on board with this. And there are so many complicated situations and political toing and froing between UEFA and FIFA and sort of the domestic football associations and the top flight leagues. It's it's a clusterfuck, and to the point where I don't believe a Super League can happen because I just I don't believe that they they'll be allowed to do it. I don't think the players will choose to do it. There's no appetite amongst the fans. Where's the audience going to come from? They're essentially relying on, like you touched on earlier, foreign markets. So essentially, in the Americas uh, and probably Asia as well, because it was interesting. The timing of the, the press release was about half eleven. UK time on a Sunday, very different time in the USA. Monday, Monday <laughs> morning sort of, in Asia. Yeah, exactly. And they they relying on that market to to bump up the TV figures, but they also need to rely on the European market. If there's no appetite for it between players, fans, coaches, whatever. I can't see it getting realistically off the ground. It's interesting, isn't it? We'll see whether it does happen, but. Um... I, mean, I suppose, first of all, it's in, it really takes something to unite fans, players, coaches, uh, and UEFA and FIFA all on the same side. It's um, impressive in a way. It, it, it is <laughs> impressive. Um, before, before we kind of get into some other things, it's worth saying the UK government, the opposition, FIFA, UEFA, the Premier League, the FA, others I'm sure that I've probably missed have all said this can't happen and we will do what we can to stop it. It does seem inevitable that it ends up um, at some point in a court of law. But the Premier League and, and the FA have suggested, I don't think they've said it explicitly, but they've suggested that if the six English clubs proceed with this, they will be expelled from the Premier League and all domestic competition. Um, interested in, in your two's thoughts on this, but mine wholeheartedly is if they do do this it would be the right thing to do to expel them from the Premier League and say you are not welcome back in domestic competition until you stop doing this and when you do come back you have to earn your place back where you were it's fair it's fair play isn't it because you've got to look at the Premier League and sort of tagged onto that the Football League if you can uh, as a kind of it's like Inferno's nightclub uh, on Clapham High Street isn't it you know it's a <laughs> I'm gonna. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited for this analogy now. <laughs> it's unfortunately not going as deep into the club as you'd like to. And if you have been to Inferno's, good on you. And if you haven't, maybe don't bother. But you know, you get to the door. If the bouncers don't like the look of you, if you don't fit the criteria, you're not getting in. It's not your club. 
you have no right to be inside that club. So if you are refused entry, it's fair game. You don't own that nightclub. So unless something bizarre happens where a strange, mysterious Big Six consortium decides to buy the Premier League, then it's absolutely fair game. Yeah, you can, you guys, you Big Six can break away and you can do what you fucking want, but you ain't coming back. And even from a legal point of view, I think it's probably fair game. Well, we obviously, none of us are lawyers, but it's interesting. The Premier League rules do say explicitly that any club that joins a competition that isn't approved by the Premier League cannot play in the Premier League. Well, it's, I mean, you make a good point, Jim. You know, the businessman running this this charade. Listen to Agnelli and the comments that he made last week in support of the new Champions League format before turning off his phone so Infantino couldn't call him and making this announcement on Sunday night. Look at the Arsenal, the, the, the chairman, I believe, there. And he was just made one of the senior roles in the European Club Association and wrote about how they needed to work together to improve the Champions League format two weeks ago. Like all these, it's all crap. It's all bollocks. But I, I think their gamble, my, my gut instinct is that their gamble is they think they can win the argument about still getting to play in the Prem to say that they won't play Champions League anymore. They'll do European Super League instead and they will still be allowed to play domestically. Would you like to see that happen? From Would you like Tottenham to be allowed to continue to play in the Premier League? Absolutely not. It's completely immoral. You know, we would we would deserve to be kicked out. And I think also you made the point earlier that this is really about, I think Sven said in his first sentence, it's about what we want football as a game to be, right? And one of the underlying things is it doesn't matter whether you're playing football on a Tuesday night at fucking power play or, you know, down the local park on your Sunday or at a higher level. The competition is what makes it interesting. And honestly, no one could give less of a crap tonight about Liverpool versus Leeds because Liverpool are not competing for the Champions League anymore. It's irrelevant. Their result against Leeds is irrelevant. Uh, whether Arsenal finish ninth or 15th in the league is irrelevant. Whether Tottenham do. You know, that, that this happens in American sports. You know, this is an American concept. Franchising sports is an American approach. And nobody cares about where they are in the table in baseball until March. Because basically, it is irrelevant until you hit the playoffs. So... Mm you are going to get that same pattern. It is going to be irrelevant as to really how Tottenham do on their Saturday and Sunday fixtures if they stay in the competition. And that devalues the competition. It takes away the game that we love. It's interesting as well, isn't it? You can, you can easily see a situation where Arsenal, for example, this season, looked like they were legitimately in a relegation battle until about November and they started to get their act together. If this was in a year's time and the Super League happened, Arsenal wouldn't care about being relegated from the Premier League because they'd still be in the Super League because they can't be relegated from that. They cannot fail. So it completely destroys any sense of competition in the Premier League. You would find, I suspect, none of these clubs would care about winning that competition at all. No. might be great for Leicester and West Ham and Southampton. But what about all the other clubs that have got to compete against that? You've got worthless games. It just dist- it, it's not just about these six clubs, is it? It's about everybody else as well that that's, has to dance to their tune. And, and that's what I actually think is more important, funnily enough, than even though I'm a Spurs fan and this, you know, this kills me. It's, it's honestly, I'm veering between <laughs> intense anger and wanting to go and throw bottles at the stadium. Um, which worrying me, I'm close enough to do if I really, if I really, if I really wanted to, I could get there on my bike. We don't um, condone violence. You do no. you. <laughs> and you know, and and criminal to... damage is an offence. Yeah. And but I'm veering between that and wanting to call my uncle, who's the reason I'm a Spurs fan, and wanting to to have a whiskey and cry. Whether our club has made the decision to do that shouldn't mean that other clubs and other fans have to essentially have their love of the game removed. Unfortunately, though, that's, that's probably going to be the next step in this Super League saga that that I can kind of see sort of stemming on from big picture and sort of what they've muted before. I think they won't get this off the ground and then they will look to do this breakaway. But 
like you say, the biggest problem is going to be the competitiveness. It would be so much worse for teams like Burnley, who have so little money. Say, for instance, the big six were allowed to say stay in the Premier League and compete in the Super League, but with a three and a half billion pound injection to keep them, you know, punching way above their weight, despite all the damage that the pandemic has caused in the domestic league, it would be. It wouldn't be a, a fair competition uh, whatsoever on the likes of these <laughs> piss poor budgets that you see further down the league. They, they wouldn't see the point in turning up at that stage. Regardless of the moral arguments, this league would surely just be incredibly boring. I mean, you've got a te- you've got theoretically fifteen teams out of twenty that can't be relegated, no matter how they fail. Imagine you're uh, Man United. You start your Super League season and you lose your first four games against Real, Barcelona, Juve and Atletico. Your chances of winning that league are essentially gone straight away. And you've then got 34 other games that are completely worthless because you're not, you're not fighting to win the thing. You're not fighting to avoid being relegated. So you're just kind of existing. It's, an, it's a moral argument. It's an argument about what we want our sport to be. And you've just said you want the sport to be competitive and interesting to watch. And the 12 families or states or investment funds who are making this shift are not interested Mm -hmm. in it being an interesting sport. They're interested in it becoming a revenue driving exercise. Mm. Well, nailed it. Absolutely. It's probably a a good time to talk about the uh, Champions League, which is also uh, UEFA have have kind of pressed on and, and sort of not, not pretended that this hasn't happened because uh, the UEFA president, Alexander Safarin, has had some pretty uh, pretty strong He's things to say today. Salty is, a, is, a, is an understatement. That man well, today, has, has, he, is, he is knee-deep in, in it. He is very unhappy. Uh, he said what we were all thinking, didn't he? Um, the Champions League will change, assuming uh, with or without these uh, 12 clubs. Uh, from 2024-25, uh, it'll go from 32 to 36 teams, um, and the group stage disappears. So it will be a 36-team league, uh, and each team will play 10 games against 10 different opponents, five home and five away. At the end of that, the top eight automatically qualify for the next round, and then the teams finishing between ninth and 24th go into playoff spots um, to make up the last 16, then it carries on uh, as it is at the moment. So even before the Super League proposal, this is a the change to the Champions League is also designed to achieve two things. First of all, more matches means more revenue. Uh, and secondly, it means that big teams can fail because rather than having to finish second in a group of four, uh, they now only have to finish... 24th in a league of 36. Um, it's maybe a sign of how unhinged this Super League idea is that had this Champions League proposal happened in its own right, I think most people would have been saying that's a terrible idea. And instead, UEFA looked like the good guys. 12 teams have joined so far, six from England, six, uh, three from Spain, three from Italy. I think most people's assumption, although it's not been said, is that they would imagine the other three teams are Paris, Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund, all of whom haven't joined. Jules, I find it particularly interesting that the German clubs haven't joined at this point. German football is structured in a way that that is designed to stop this uh, because fans, with a couple of notable exceptions, have to own 51% of German football clubs for exactly this purpose, to stop them being hijacked by charlatans i think the reality is that the german clubs sort of protection system the 50 plus one rule is exactly doing its job here number one and um, but number two the germans are also taking quite a pragmatic view i think in their own way um because is this really the answer i don't think it is we need to reduce the inequality between leagues, not teams. The Premier League teams, you know, I think something like 14 of the 
top 20 richest teams in the in the world are in England. There needs to be a cap to stop English teams becoming obscenely rich and to stop state-owned teams coming in and and being excessive either. Um, now, there are plenty of people who would say, well, Bayern Munich aren't one to talk about having financial dominance over others, given that they basically spent the last two decades taking the best player from other German teams in order to, to protect their own hegemony. But I think the Germans' reticence is both born out of their own system and out of the realisation that this doesn't even really do what mm. most of those clubs wanted it for. When I when I texted my um, my uncle about it earlier, he pointed something out to me. He said, "You know, who is the ringleader here? Who's who's actually put this on the table? Florentino Perez, primarily. Florentino Perez has been driving this since two thousand and nine. Agnelli just just needs to be able to pay Ronaldo's wages. That's that's a different kettle of fish. But Florentino Perez with Real Madrid and Barcelona stand the most to gain out of any club." From this because they are they have more debt than any other clubs and they are the ones who right now through financial mismanagement are in serious trouble so is this system there to to look at you know what's the best way to have an elite sport or is it even actually quite a bad version of that because all it's really there to do is to give a 3.5 billion euro injection to badly run clubs. Yeah, it's just overt corruption, isn't it? It's just, yeah. it's just so blatant. It's, well, I'm not even shocked anymore because we're almost so used to it. We call it financial doping. And it's right because we all feel doped. We all feel a bit numb to it. But, you know, we shouldn't. We need, we need to go cold turkey. We need to come round because this isn't football anymore. This is just uh, a lot of rich men moving pawns around a board that we're no longer on and, and that's not right that that's not what we signed up to and it, it's embarrassing for the, these big clubs who are, are so scared of basically falling from the top and that's all it is you look at the, the how boring domestic leagues have been over the past what 20 years which has been the period where we've seen the most money put into football and they are scared of losing that they're scared of losing their, their grips on power. But that's never what football was about. It was always about fluid changes. It was always about peaks and troughs because that was the nature of meritocracy. It was the nature of sport and competition. And we're losing that integrity now because the money that came in to corrupt it is corrupted it you know, beyond recognition now. Mm. It's, um, I think that's absolutely spot on about, about the meritocracy and it. I come from it, come at it from a slightly different perspective, supporting a club that's, for the vast majority of its history, been bad at football. Part of the part of the fascination of the game for me is that over the course of twenty years or so of following my club, I've seen it compete in five different divisions over the course of twenty years. I've seen the team of players that represents my club at different stages being a team of internationals or a team of teachers and physios and bricklayers that have another job because they're only part-time and everything in between. And that can only happen because football clubs are allowed to fail. Stockport County disappeared through the leagues because they were run terribly and they paid the price for it by being relegated time and time and time again. And they've been up and down and on a different trajectory now. They're kind of on their way back up again. But it's never been about winning football matches. It's been about that sense of community it's a it's going to the pub with your mates it's seeing the faces that you see every week hugging strangers when you score a goal you know mixing with people that you have nothing in common with you know whether whether male female old young you have for 90 minutes you have one thing in common that gives you this kind of bond that you can't really get from anything else it transcends religion politics class in a way class is is a bit a bit more difficult but it's about it's less about winning it's it's absolutely about competition it's about trying to win and being the best that you can be but it's not about winning and I think that's the case for most people and that's the same reason why Leicester City can win the Premier League because 
that year they played out of their skins and everybody else failed. And that can only happen as long as you have some degree of meritocracy. And without it, yes, of course, like Jules, you're absolutely right. The people behind this aren't interested in that. But from a supporter's perspective, if you don't have that, there's just no, there's no appeal to it. There's no point. Why would I want to watch that for 90 minutes? It's a total waste of my time. You know, it's it, it's interesting. You talk there about your sort of emotions of going to games and, you know, you're, you love Stockport County so much. And I, I, I cite you whenever I talk to my girlfriend about like true fans and what they and what they mean in their communities and what what it means to be a, a fan. I, I'll often talk about like you and Stockport. You're a good and yardstick I'll... of uh, <laughs> falls from grace. Is what you're <laughs> That's what we're trying to get to. I'm just being nice. Um, I also think of my own like the happiest uh, experiences or the or the greatest like emotional peaks if you know what I mean, mm. that I've had in football. And none of them have been winning. Like, I remember being a Fulham, being in the Fulham stands, like, as a Fulham season ticket holder, when we signed up for, like, 60 quid. It was, like, for a dad and son ticket thing. And you're in the Europa League, and mm. but you didn't have to pay any more if you got out of the group stage. So it was just every, if you keep going through, you just get free games. And that was the year that we got to the final <laughs> and then lost Ooh. with Let's Go Madrid. And I remember beating Juventus 4-1 and watching Clint Dempsey chip fucking <laughs> Gigi Buffon. Mm. And, I, <laughs> like, and I remember, and yeah, we lost the final, but the emotional peaks and like the pleasure I got out of that season is I, I've never felt anything like it. Mm. And even with Tottenham, like one of my happiest moments as a Tottenham fan was Yunus Kabul crossing it for Peter Crouch to score that header, which meant oh, that we yes. we got Champions League for the first... That was the first time that I saw Spurs in the Champions League in my life. And I knew when that goal went in, I knew it was there. And there was something so special about that mad moment. And we we were beating the team which had more money, which had mm. better players. And we knew they had better players, for fuck's sake. We had Eunice Kabul. But, but there was something special <laughs> in that moment that it's 11 guys against 11 guys on a pitch, right? And... Everything you've just said, I just think what we're talking about here and stripping away the competitive element of the sport, that is that is the most damaging aspect because that is what makes football worth having our lives revolve around it. Jim touched on it when he was talking about football transcending a lot of things, including religion, and it almost becomes a new religion in itself. It, it's it's worshipped um, without question. It's a, it's a form of tribalism that no one can ever rationalise, but we just kind of accept that it is part of our culture. But we all quite, you know, within uh, reason, not going into hooliganism, but within reason, it, it's, it's an accepted form of tribalism that we can all come to have fun with and mm. enjoy. And it's about being there through the peaks and troughs, like you've both touched on, because it was put into context quite well by a friend of mine who's a United fan. And it's obviously in a, a similar mood to us where without the peaks and troughs, you don't have good games, you know, big games and little games. You know, what I mean, you look forward to the big games in the big uh, European nights. Like we looked at PSG Bayern, the last round in the Champions League. And everyone watched that and thought, what, what a fixture that was. And we bemoan. OK, some of them were boring games. You don't want to see Bayern up against, you know, Mulder from Norway and okay we might have to sit through that and there's, there's two ways of looking at that one you need relativity everything is relative so you need to be able to have big games and little games to appreciate the big games if you have big games all the time you're numb to it because we can talk back to some of the biggest games in Spurs' history and you think I'll oh, remember that time when Real Madrid and Dortmund turned up at our patch uh, at Wembley, <laughs> I mean, we managed to do them over here. What a great time. But in seasons come down in the future, if we get to, to Real Madrid and we're, we're thinking, oh, you know, remember that time when uh, we beat them at Argaff? Oh, yeah, what year? Oh, uh, I don't know. We play them every fucking year. And you, you lose some of the specialness of that. Uh, and that. That isn't as fun. But also coming at it from the other end, when you're Mulder and you're playing Bayern Munich and you push so hard, it's so big for you. To, to get into the big leagues and actually push your way in, it means so much to these little teams, these smaller groups of fans, 
and they just get forgetting about because it, it's not about them because mm. they don't bring much money to the table. And there's been a lot of things, I think, over the last 24 hours or so, there are a lot of things that have resonated. The two that stay with me are the one, the, the picture of Bill Nicholson at the gates at White Hart Lane. Somebody just commented saying you failed him. Uh, and the other one was the banner at the stadium that says football is a game created by the poor and stolen by the rich. For me, it feels this time we've been here before. There's always been an element of kind of, you know, the Premier League has been known as the greedy league for a long time for a lot of people the excesses of the game have been a turn off for i think for all of us being honest for a long time but we willingly or not choose to look past it because of this bigger picture love we have for the game and it feels with this now like it's a watershed moment where a critical mass of football people from ordinary fans like us to Jurgen Klopp and Alex Ferguson have said enough. We so, were born in a really interesting time. Sort of touching on what you were saying about the history of the game, and you know, I was very fortunate enough to be able to uh, manipulate some of my academic career to be able to academically write about <laughs> football. What an absolute touch that was! But I was able to look at you know the history of the football league and uh, basically it, its northern origins, but where that come about and where the biggest issues came about from the formation of the Football League is uh, teams started to pay players to to play, basically, and basically being able to get the best players uh, to to beat other teams. And I think West Ham famously refused to... They, they, they protested against, I think it was Preston North End because of uh, that sort of incident. Obviously, that's way before our time, but... We, the three of us, are of a certain generation. Let's accept that we are what we are. Um, we were born in the early 90s, and it was a really interesting time because everything started to change. You had modern professional football was what it was, by and large, unchanged for a long, long time. You had a bit of recession in the 80s, which caused big issues, big issues with hooliganism, lots of big clubs in financial difficulty. Uh, and there was United in shining armour, the Premier League that was going to, or the Premiership, I can't remember what they built it as to start with, uh, that was going to break away uh, from the traditional football league uh, and create a new top to the pyramid that would be shinier than, than the old dilapidated pyramid. At the time, I'm sure people were, if podcasts were a thing better, and they would have been having those some of the conversations that we are now. But we've lived with that we've lived through it. it's all we've ever known in fairness but what worries me most is the generation that will kind of come after us so people who were perhaps born around the turn of the 21st century who only know the truly commercialized level of football we've got a nice balance we're quite a good generation of being to help appreciate the world sort of pre-internet but also pre all this financial doping to the level that we see it now, we appreciated a, a shitty wooden terrace and standing in the freezing cold with a your hip flask and wishing it was all over, but also secretly being really fucking glad you were there and not having to have you know heated seats, whatever you can probably get away with nowadays. We, we had that romanticised vision from days gone by, and it weren't all great days. Obviously, there's, there's certain elements that, that we've improved upon, but... I, I don't know. There's, a, there's, a, there's striking a balance, isn't there, between the sport that we love, the sport that we want to see, and financial prosperity. Well said. Um, there's a couple of things I want to touch on before we finish. There is a group of people caught in the middle here that don't appear to have been consulted, which is the players, the people that do this for a profession. Uh, Jules, if you were Harry Kane, would you want to be a part of this? It's a really interesting question. Because I would say no for me personally because of why I love football. Um, but I'm always reminded that for professionals in the game, it, it is a profession. It's a job. But my honest interpretation and my honest picture of players is that they care almost more than money. They care about being able to compare themselves to their heroes because they all grew up in the garden pretending to kick a ball like someone else. Every player would have grown up, whether it's De Bruyne wanting to be Zidane or Zidane wanting to be Platini, every player grew up dreaming of 
scoring these winning goals in Champions League finals and World Cup finals and in lifting the trophies that, that their heroes lifted. So if I was a player, personally, I'd, I think there's a lot of players pretty pretty sickened by the idea of not being able to maybe, you know, fulfil all the dreams that they had. But there may be some for whom the financial aspect is, is maybe a powerful force as it is in plenty of other career play, career spaces. Uh, your wave have suggested that any player that takes part in this competition will be barred from taking part in internationals. And we all know that international football means different things to different people. Um, but it does beg the question, you know, lots of people say, lots of footballers say there's no greater pride for them than representing their country. And if that was taken away from them, not only does it cause a problem for this competition, but it starts to raise the prospect of whether it would be any good at all and whether you get this kind of two-tier competition, a bit like you have the, the Chinese Super League. You know, you, you might well get players that are over the hill and on their way down and want a payday going to the Super League and the good players that actually care about competition and winning things, staying in domestic leagues and playing international football. Don't, don't you see in, in rugby, um, I believe I'm right in thinking that in order to play for the All Blacks, you have to have played the previous year in New Zealand, or certainly in Southern Hemisphere rugby. I don't know, obviously, because I'm not a lawyer, but it may turn out to be illegal to, to ban players from playing international football because of where they play their trade. But there's nothing to stop football associations all over the world saying, we will not pick you if you join this competition. Whether, whether they would do that, I don't know, but... You're right. I think the All Blacks do it. I know England rugby used to do it as well, didn't they? Because if if players yeah. played in France, they weren't allowed to play for England. That wasn't a legal thing. It was a choice they made. And that and that's the example I mean with. I think Dan Carter was playing for is it Toulon or Toulouse, which is the very very Toulon, good side. Yeah. He had to go back to a less good club, and he went back exactly one year prior to the World Cup, so that he could technically qualify. Maybe you'll end up in a weird position where. Kevin De Bruyne, you know, can be at City and then he has to run down his contract to go turn it out for Barnsley. Honestly, no, but, but equally, you know, maybe also it will redistribute some of the best players because if you're Kevin De Bruyne and you have to leave the best of England, are you really going to go to play for Barnsley or why don't you go, I don't know, go back to Anderlecht mm. or go to, go to Ajax, mm-hmm. go to Atalanta. Like mm. there's, you know, and France right now, no French club has currently signed up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there might be a reason for that because your man at PSG, I mean, it's only going to be PSG, but he's got quite a lot of uh, money invested in the Champions League. It benefits him a lot because he's in charge of being sport, which have obviously got broadcasting rights to the Champions League. So there's always cynical elements to this. Let's not blindfold ourselves to this. But the, play, the player conundrum is, a, is an interesting one. It, you know, we saw that argument with the, the Bosman rulings about you know, what a player can do come the end of their contract. Uh, are, are they free to, to go elsewhere? And obviously, <laughs> the, the, the directive is yes, <laughs> of course you can. You've got free will to, to go and work for whoever you want. I think, yeah, you're right. The only way national teams are going to be able to do it is to say, if you play in the European Super League, we won't pick you. And unfortunately, that's not a protected characteristic under the Equality Act of uh, 2010. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, you don't, and you don't could, have a right to be picked to an international team. So Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, yeah, I mean, it should be a meritocratic process, but I don't know. Eric Dyer got picked in the last round. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, our fellow potter who can't be with us tonight, did make a, a suggestion which I'll, I'll raise here, which is an, an interesting point I hadn't thought of until he said it. It seems like most of the players, or all of the players maybe, at at these clubs haven't been consulted on this, and they have contracts that compel them to work for these clubs. Um, So his suggestion was, if you're, uh, let's say you're a Spurs player with two years left on your contract and the Super League starts in August, that there should be no reason why that player is banned from international football for the rest of his current contract, and that it only kicks in if he then makes a conscious choice to re-sign for Spurs or another club in the Super League, which is interesting uh, food for thought. But um, 
just one of the final points on on kind of punishment, uh, Tom. Even if this doesn't happen and it ends up either to have been a bargaining chip all along, or I think likelier they are serious about it, but it can't happen because I suspect, if necessary, legislation will be used to stop them. Do you think these clubs should face some form of punishment anyway for even attempting to do things the way they have? Whether Mm. that's fines or points deductions or... I know Gary Neville suggested they should be made an example of. What what do you think of that? I don't I don't think if you were walking on the street and someone says, Do you want this tenner? Uh, and you go, Yeah, great, got a tenner. And then you walk down the road and picked uh, walk past a policeman who gave you a twenty pound fine for being handed a tenner. You'd be a bit upset about that. I think there is so, an extent it's a strange that, it's a strange analogy, Fen. It is a strange analogy. I don't know where that came from. But basically, it's fair game to be able to try and better your business, for, to try and find new ways of creating revenue. This is a really drastic way and is probably, I don't know whether to use the word unethical, but it's bordering on that where, you know, you're teetering on the edge of the morality of the game. But ultimately, football is business. Let's not be naive. So... To what extent do we just go, right, it's, it's fair game. They, they are trying to, well, they will say that they're trying to improve the competitiveness of, of the elite game, which is what most people tune into. Obviously, there are the cynical sides to, to the money involved in that. But, you know, they, they clearly have a, an issue with the proposals that are being offered by UEFA with the Champions League and the format that Jim explained earlier is going to apply to the Europa League and this new... Uh, conference league as well which you know the amount of teams and clubs involved in in european competition is going to be through the roof i mean i don't know how you're going to see a game on a first day because mm-hmm. there'll be about there'll probably be hundreds on at the same time mm. but so this is where it comes down to me where can i realistically see the super league happening no do i think it should be punished for proposing it no because i think this is more of a leverage. Perhaps they do have a point. Perhaps a smaller Champions League would make it more entertaining. That's a really interesting perspective because I didn't expect you to have it, um, frankly. What did you expect from me? <laughs> have I let you down? I can't tell. No, I, I wouldn't have thought that you would say that they're sort of entitled to chase the money. Do you think, Jules, it's, it's not... It's not so much that they've chased the money, but the way they've gone about it. It seems obvious from what Alexander Seferin has said, and said they spit in the face of the game, that they have deliberately gone behind people's backs. I think that's why the reaction has been as visceral as it has, and why I'm surprised Fens isn't more. Because just by contrast, we talk about the example of the um, the proposals that were made you know, not not that long ago supposedly by those big clubs which they you turned on you look at the decisions of some big clubs namely our own and Liverpool to furlough staff during Covid and then renegade on that decision you know showing that fans opinion mattered at that stage this is you know they haven't put out the proposal and this reaction can be taken accounted for they've dropped out of the European Club Association they've, they've kind of they've made the move and I think the way they've done it, the the clear sort of distasteful way that they've gone about it has created this incredibly negative atmosphere. And, and sadly, I think, in a sense, the genie is out of the bottle. I think if the clubs renegated now on this deal and didn't take it and didn't form the Super League, I don't think they would be punished. But I think any financial punishment would frankly be inconsequential to the level of hatred and dislike that those clubs are now going to get across the country, even if Tottenham row back from this now, every single time we go away to any team, can you imagine the the torrent of abuse and dislike? We, we are going to be referred to as the dirty dozen. And whether we are fined <laughs> as a result of this, we are going to be known as one of those who crossed the picket line. We're going to be known as the scabs of the professional game. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and the that, rats. And, I don't. And I, we are the don't rats. We are the rats, and and that will be. Well, it's, it's, it's what's interesting, though, isn't it? It's not we. It's not. It's not Spurs fans. It's not Spurs staff. It's specifically 
the people that own the shares. Uh, and that, I think that's what's difficult for people to stomach, that that's being... When your football club does something, it does it in your name. And I think that's what, for most people, will hurt. I don't want anything to do with this, and therefore I'm having to make a choice between supporting my football club or being seen to be complicit in what they're doing. Um, well, you pay to be a member of a club, don't you? That's the principle of clubs. I yeah. pay to be a member of Tottenham Hotspur. Exactly. It happens. Uh, and I didn't get a say in it. And I think to sort of finish off Jules's point about punishment and to maybe finesse mine, do I think it's fair game that they went and try and find this drastic new revenue stream? Yes. The punishment will always be that it was always doomed to fail, in my opinion, because it was it was just so bad. It was just the way that they've done it and uh, snuck around. Uh, if they were going to use their their businesses terms than their stakeholders their stakeholders being uh, all the fucking fans where they get all their money the people who need to consume whatever they're selling in order for them uh, to generate revenue like you say say they've been like uh, Leeds playing Liverpool uh, as we record imagine if Adam Road was full and Liverpool mm-hmm. turned up can you imagine it's, it's, some of the scenes that would have gone yeah. on it's way more than any other sanction that can be given to the point where what, <laughs> why yeah. sanction them they're doomed it's worth saying, I think there were protests outside Elland Road um, tonight and also that uh, Leeds, uh, before the start of the game, wore T-shirts that had the Champions League logo on it and just said, earn it. Speaks exactly to both of your points that forever... It sums it up beautifully. Yeah. Jurgen Klopp has been a very outspoken critic of the Super League mm-hmm. idea for a few years and he was. I, th- I felt he treaded the line perfectly of clearly being unhappy with it, but you can also tell he's they're still being employed by the club he can't say what he's really thinking he really took offense at the idea that that his players who he's worked with so closely for these years that they haven't earned what they what they've achieved he he feels you know a sense of personal pride and ambition and i'd love to know you know andy robertson and what motivates him to get up and go to work every day what motivates him to get three points on a saturday and what motivates van dyke to come back from his injury you know, the, the reason these people care is that this sport is fun because it's competitive, because you don't know who's going to win. Well, the well, game is about glory, as a certain man said. But as a, as a very other certain man said close to the Tottenham circles, there used to be a football club over there. And I can't believe we, we might have to say that again. It's, uh, it's a poignant point. I think um, we should look to wrap things up. I, I think, ultimately, whatever happens here... the. These 12 clubs may not be OK, but I think the game itself will survive. It will adapt and change as it needs to. Uh, this whole issue is a motive. It will probably end up in a court of law. Um, but it seems uh, already that the, the court of public opinion has made its mind up. So we'll we'll leave it there. Hopefully it's not been too hard a, a listen. It's not our usual light-hearted uh, attempt at a podcast that we go for but we felt like we needed to um to put across what we think do let us know what you think i'm sure i'm sure lots of people think the same way and some people may disagree as well um so so please do let us know what you think thanks for listening and see you next time